So we're being told that CRT is not really in education. What is it that's really happen, happening in education right now that, that maybe people need to be aware of in a deeper way or just to be able to understand what's going on? You know, I don't like being manipulated and I don't like being lied to. And so they're saying critical race theory is not in education. Mm. This is a blatant lie. Mm. It's a blatant distortion. Something's going on in education. So we've talked before, I know, about the fact that there is such a thing as critical race praxis that's mm. happening in the schools. That's putting critical race theory into action. We've talked before about how critical theories require praxis or Marxian theory requires praxis or critical pedagogy, which is one of the things in the schools, requires praxis. Praxis is putting theory into application. So there's, if there's critical race theory as a critical theory of race, then there's a critical race praxis that is part of that theory, which mm. means doing critical race theory. So they're doing critical race theory, not so much teaching the legal aspect of it. So they're teaching about privilege. They're teaching about white supremacy in a way of saying that it's a system that everybody uh, either is benefiting from or and thus complicit in or is oppressed by and thus subjugated by. They're, they're taking the entire approach of equity. They're, these are the things that they're actually teaching in the schools. This is critical race praxis. They are putting the theory of the ideas of critical race theory into practice. If you read you know, Richard Delgado, for example, one of the guys that was at the founding meeting of critical race theory in 1989 in Madison, Wisconsin, he says repeatedly, whether it's in his books, whether it's in interviews, whether it's in articles that he's written, guys in his 80s now, he says he said repeatedly for decades, critical race theory very rapidly left law and found an even more natural home. He says in education, where it's really taken off. It's really meshed with the mm. educational um, you know, style and ethos and, and way of thinking. It's really latched onto this broader thing that's definitely in the schools is called critical pedagogy. So critical race theory as critical race praxis is in our schools. So it's just a straight lie. It's a manipulation that, no, they're not teaching some narrow legal theory that was cooked up in the 70s and early 80s right. in elementary schools. But they're taking the ideas that were born out of that and out of its subsidiary branches like critical whiteness studies and they're teaching those ideas in the schools. They're programming children according to those ideas, teaching them to think with a critical race lens or to have a critical race consciousness. And raising that consciousness is critical race praxis, which is a integral part. Again, a critical theory has to have three components or it's not a critical theory by definition. It must hold an idealized vision of society that's probably going to be something communistic. It must complain about how the existing society doesn't live up to that idealized vision, uh, and it must inspire social activism on its behalf. Hmm. That, that's praxis. It must do praxis. You read that in every dimension. So we can turn our attention to critical pedagogy then. What is critical pedagogy? That's in schools. Mm -hmm. That is the critical theory of education. Mm -hmm. Pedagogy is an educational theory or model or approach. It's a way of teaching. It's understanding how to teach. And there is a critical pedagogy. This was started to be developed in the 1970s. It was fully born by the early 1980s. It was being pushed into colleges of education as a deliberate form of praxis mm -hmm. to get educators in colleges of education tenured. This was a deliberate push. We, there, there's actually a guy, Henry Giroux. He's mm -hmm. considered the father of critical pedagogy. Mm -hmm. 
hugely influential as you can might as you might imagine and he has this whole thing that he wrote about how he was as an act of critical race or critical pedagogy praxis he worked very diligently to get 100 professors tenured in schools of education critical professors who are critical pedagogists so critical pedagogy is this fancy word and it can take up critical race theory and critical race praxis which are the same two sides of the same coin that's by the way saying critical race theory is not in uh Schools is like saying this isn't a quarter because you don't see Washington's face. You just see that eagle or whatever state it is on the back of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not really a quarter. Washington's face is on the quarter. So, you know, we, this is an eagle. That's definitely not critical race theory. That's critical race praxis. It's totally different. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, th these, these distortions are so annoying. But critical pedagogy itself is kind of the big umbrella of mm -hmm. what's going on in the schools. And it can pick up critical race theory. It can pick up critical gender theory. So you're going to have drag queen story hour being read you know stories being read by drag queens and doing their dances and performances to children that's in schools but that's adopting queer theory and gender theory instead of race theory uh, as a critical method to mm. awake a critical consciousness anything that's mm. seeking to to raise a critical consciousness to think in terms of critical theory is critical pedagogy in the field of education there are two two aspects to critical pedagogy one is there's the critical theory of how education is done so it's like applying it to itself and then there's the critical theory of, of educating, where you're now making, hmm. you're teaching critical theory to the children. So it's, it's changing education itself to become more and more praxis-oriented, and it's taking that praxis-oriented education and installing it as an educational programming into the children that it considers its charges. That's going on in our schools. That's what's really, that's the umbrella concept, critical pedagogy. But to say that critical pedagogy isn't gonna take up any critical theory, like critical mm -hmm. race theory, is, is, a, is a complete distortion and a complete lie. If critical pedagogy is talking about race, it's doing critical race theory. It's you doing, it's not teaching specifically the, it, it's not, this is my favorite part actually, uh, sorry to go off on a digression. Oh, go. A lot of liberal people right now don't want to fight back against this mm -hmm. because they say, oh, it's an academic theory. Mm -hmm. We should teach academic theories. Academic freedom demands that we teach academic theories. We should teach it as an academic theory. Well, if you remember, for example, Trump laid out an EO last September, an executive order banning the teaching of certain divisive concepts. It was nominally banning the teaching of critical race theory, um, though it technically never bans critical race theory. It bans teaching discrimination, scapegoating, and stereotyping by race, naming the country as intrinsically evil mm -hmm. because it's racist and so on. But if you read in section 10 of the executive order, it explicitly says nothing in this order will be construed to prohibit the teaching of this as an academic subject. But that's right. not what critical race theorists are interested in. Right. They don't want to teach it as an academic subject. They want to do it to people. They are doing critical race praxis to people, which is a commandment of critical race theory. The only mm. three rules in a critical theory must have praxis. Mm. And so they are doing this. So these people who are like, we can't ban ideas. I hate to say it, you know, but just these liberal people who believe that everything operates in this realm of argument and discussion rather than the fact that these people have occupied a dimension of power that doesn't care about argument and discussion, that twists words, twists meanings, lies, manipulates, and distorts as we're even discussing now as one example, don't understand that they aren't willing to and actually cannot teach critical race theory as an academic subject. If mm. they did, they would leave out praxis. Mm. They would leave out critical race praxis. And then one of the three pillars that creates it as a critical theory is no longer there. 
That would be like having Christianity without pe- having people do Christianity. Mm-hmm. You can't have that. It's not Christian anymore. Oh, we're just going to... I mean, that's the kind of Christianity that I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, I've read the gospel. I understand what the words are. Yeah, there's some interesting wisdom in there. And you guys immediately recognize that it's not Christian. Mm-hmm. I'm not practicing the religion. Mm-hmm. And in Marxian terms, there's no praxis. But Christianity doesn't exactly have a praxis. That's not what I'm saying. In critical theory, there must be a praxis or it's not the thing. And so when they say, well, we should teach critical race theory as an academic subject, I guess because it's out there and enough people think about it mm-hmm. that we have to now talk about it. Like nobody's teaching, you know, whatever you want to pick, Scientology, nobody's teaching any kind of like, you know, doomsday cult. Nobody's teaching any of that stuff in schools and nobody says, oh, well, it's out there. We have to put it into schools. We have to teach right. controversy. Like nobody's saying that. Right. But you can't teach you can't have a critical race theorist teaching critical race theory in schools as an academic subject, as these people say, we must not ban that, mm-hmm. because critical race theory requires praxis. Mm-hmm. Critical pedagogy is founded on praxis. You read Pedagogy of the Oppressed, mm-hmm. you read, uh, which is Paula Ferrari. Mm-hmm. You read uh, Henry Giroux, anything, praxis, 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 praxis. It's all having to be put into practice, which they describe as being self-reflective, and it has this element of reflection, and it is very important to, uh, to you know, engage in a particular way that, ra- that raises that critical consciousness, that awakening to consciousness, and that's the goal. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing a critical theory, and so right. they can't not do that. It's obviously in our schools, and they're obviously lying. And it was the same thing actually said by uh, the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Bishops that had met just after Vatican II and before as well, when they, they introduced liberation theology. And they specifically said it was a praxis. Yeah. Gutierrez and others. I mean, look at Kimberly Crenshaw. What does mm-hmm. she say about critical race theory, but especially about intersectionality? What she's mm-hmm. always said about intersectionality is not so much an academic theory as a practice. Correct. Why does she call it a practice? Because there's a practice built into it. It's a lens to see the world and a practice that you have to engage in. Mm-hmm. Praxis. P-R-A-X-I-S. Praxis. It is the idea of putting the theory into application. And when she says something like intersectionality is a practice, not just a theory or not even a theory, what she means is the theoretical aspect is not important. The doing of it, the putting it into action that's the important part. Living it as a lifestyle, that's the important part. And that's what's in our schools, is teaching our children to live it as a lifestyle, regardless of what rarefied academic theory or specific legal doctrine or whatever is being taught. And that's its own lie, like I said, you know, uh, Delgado, Richard Delgado says. It quickly left law and got into other fields, especially education, where it has a very natural affinity mm-hmm. and just took off. Right. So when we look at, going back to Paulo Ferreira and and the pedagogy of the oppressed, uh, he has the concept that he's saying that we must do away with in terms of education, which is the banking system of education, the piggy bank almost, if you will, of of just making deposits, you know, where there's passivity in the learning process. And with that, that would be what he would say is teaching, you know, basically just teaching theory. It's not just theory. But there has to be praxis then in education. Yeah, that's right. Explain. If you could. So, I mean, it's really, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is a, is a totally mental book. I cannot figure out how, I mean, I, knew, I do know how, but the better part of me can't figure out how. You know, we have educators in the 1980s in particular looking at the Pedagogy of the press, Oppressed being brought in, especially by characters like Henry Giroux, who I just named. Mm. He was basically radicalized by the book, mm. uh, and I can tell that story in a minute. 
well, they're looking at this and it's like, you know, you're reading it and you're like, okay, banking model of education, that's whatever. And we'll, we'll discuss the banking model, uh, you know, dialogical model of education. And that's its own, okay, this is, this, that's the praxis part. And okay, so now we get this new thing. And then it's like, you know, what are we going to do about education? I know, let's quote Lenin. Let's right. cite Mao. Right. Over and over again, you know, then he's like Castro, blah, 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 you know, but he didn't quite have it. That's why we got to turn to Shea. Mm. That's like, what? So it's like, okay, I get it. He was a Marxist. I mm. get it. You know, Ferrari was a Marxist. I get why he's quoting those people. But how in the world were people who are in charge of educational institutions, I get that Drew brought it in. How in the world were the people that, that had the power in our educational institutions in the 1980s looking at a book that says, you know, what is education supposed to look like? Well, let's quote Lenin. Uh, mm -hmm. Then saying, yes, that's what we're going to do. And of course, we know what happened. They infiltrated the institutions. I just described how Giroux did as part of his praxis, bringing in 100 tenured professors of education in schools of education. So what are those tenured professors mm -hmm. going to do? Well, they're going to read that book. They're going to hold it up. They're going to share it. They're going to make it part of the standard curriculum the second they get the power. Right. Now it's if you don't know, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed is the third most cited book in the social sciences and humanities. Mm -hmm. It has sold over one and a half million copies. It is lionized in vir virtually every single school of education in North America. Mm -hmm. And the book is a absolutely communist tract about changing our education system into something completely different. And that's where this banking thing comes in. So Freire had this... I get it, like rote education is like, you know, you can picture the old school marm or teacher standing there and it's like two plus two is and the class yells four mm -hmm. and the two plus three is and the class yells five. You know, it's very just memorizing. It's memorizing base. And he says that what's happening is you have teachers as the active agents, students as the passive agents, and that the teacher is depositing information, mm -hmm. knowledge into the students like putting a deposit into the bank. And the idea is that if you put enough deposits into the bank, then the student becomes worth something and has, has an investment and then can go out and use it in the world. So he's right. got this whole idea that, that learning is done like banking, which is not quite right. Right. It, the, it, it's actually an over, as you, what a surprise that something critical and based in Marxism is an oversimplification of an actual human activity. So it's an oversimplification of how education actually has to take place, which is until you've done the basics, you don't have enough to do anything with anything. You actually do have to learn right. some basics before you can do anything. Mm -hmm. And then you can start asking questions and entering into what he later describes as dialogue. So there has to be an element of this kind of basic rote learning. When you first encounter new information, you don't know it, you don't understand it, you don't have a grasp of it, and you're not going to get a grasp of it till you get on the other side. Uh, of kind of understanding it. If I actually a long time ago wanted to write a book, how to learn anything, and it was from how I l figured out how to pass my preliminary exams or my PhD qualifying exams in mathematics, which I was not ready for the first time I took them. And I wanted to figure out how to learn math, and I figured out that, well, what I need to do is go back to the last thing I actually know, and I need to just do all the problems at that level again and again and again. And then I go to the next thing, the first thing that I don't really know and I do all those problems. I read all the stuff and I do all those problems. And there's a lot of just rote repetition mm -hmm. in this process. And then finally, after a long time of doing this, stuff starts to click. Mm. I've also, as you know, practiced martial arts for 20 something years. Mm -hmm. I've asked my, everybody who practices martial arts has this question near to mind and I guess musicians would as well. So you could relate, when is mastery? When is mastery? And I finally came to a decision a while back that mastery of something is when you don't need a teacher to continue to improve. Right that you can actually do, you understand the thing enough to start learning on your own. And before that level, 
you're not ready. Mm. And there's a very beginner bottom level where if you're a musician, I took piano in college, you play scales. Right. You don't play songs. You might pick a couple of songs so that you're engaged, easy things that you're like, oh, I make mm -hmm. something I recognize. <clears throat> but mostly, if you want to get better, you play scales. Mm -hmm. You play super rote, da -da 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 -da, up and down, up and down, up and down, like mm -hmm. 200 times. It's just automatic. Um, same on any instrument. And because you have to build that basis of skill. And Ferrari seems not to understand that. He seems not to get that there's this actual dynamic learning process and so he just wants to jump into this thing. This, the, first, he wants to just name it a banking model. Like, he's, I don't know what grade level he's looking at. He's looking at basic literacy. He was trying to get literacy to the peasants mm -hmm. uh, that were oppressed following the depression in Brazil. And he, he, he's trying to teach peasants how to read. Everything in the books about peasants this, peasants that. And so people who have nothing in terms right. of education. So he's at the very beginning stages, and he's trying to figure out ways to get them to learn to read. And I guess part of what he's looking at, and this is something that was big for Giroux, is that it's big in like culturally responsive education now, mm -hmm. which is just, or culturally responsive teaching, CRT. It's not critical race theory though, of course. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, analyzing racial cultures from a critical perspective. It's definitely not critical race theory mm -hmm. or praxis. And he's looking at this and he's saying, well, you know, maybe they don't relate to the material. We have to relate it to their experience in life. But the problem with that is it's very easy to just dip into the sociological discussion and forget the purpose of learning the basics. Mm. And um, I think that the banking model oversimplifies. But he thinks that this is a bad model of learning. And then he oversimplifies and thinks that it's the only thing that's going on in learning. Mm. And uh, he wants to do away with it and replace it with this dialogue-based model that he calls a dialogical model, which I think it was more of a dialectical model where, mm -hmm. where you know, maybe if it was ideal, it would be based off of the Socrates approach where you're asking questions and challenging people to think in new ways. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, there's an element of, of critical to that that, you know, could be seen in a positive light. I think it's maybe, you know, something like, well, it is Socrates, it's Socratic. It's also maybe something more like what Kant had in mind with his critical philosophy, critique of pure reason. And then mm. instead, though, he's got this whole, well, and there's this passage in the first part of Pedagogy of the Oppressed where I think he gives the whole thing away, besides the fact that he talks about consciousness raising, consciousness raising mm. over and over and over again. But he's talking about this peasant. He's like, I talked to this peasant. And he quotes him and it says, interview with peasant or something like that is the citation. And he's, he said, the peasant says, you know, I, I realized my powerlessness when I realized I was dependent, dependent on this, because he's a peasant, on the system. Mm -hmm. And it's like you can see when you read it, and I don't have the exact wording, but you can see when you read it, like, wow, that guy's on the knife's edge of discovering that taking responsibility for life takes you out of dependence. Mm -hmm. The path to independence, the road out of serfdom, if you will, is taking responsibility mm -hmm. to the degree that you can and then watching that grow. I mean, if I were biblical, I would say, you know, I've given you uh, dominion over the, a few things and now I'll make you a master over many or something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, you know, taking responsibility and building step by step out of that is how you get out of dependence. And then right. Ferrari's like, no, that's where you make him a revolutionary. Mm -hmm. So you take people who are, re you, the point of consciousness raising is to convince people that they are, and this is the point of the pedagogy of the oppressed, is to teach people that they are, they are dependent on, upon a system that they can't control. And rather than saying that the road out of that system is responsibility, Building up step by step, as I saw, I saw a meme today. A friend of mine sent me and said, you want to know how to turn $40 into $400? You want to know? Sure. Take that $40, buy gas, put it in your gas tank, and go to work. 
Mm. That's how you turn $40 into $400. Mm-hmm. Instead of taking responsibility and doing that, he says, no, going to work would screw you over. You're just being exploited. That's that Marxian right. theory of exploitation and labor. So instead, we're going to turn you into a revolutionary like Che Guevara and blow up the whole system. Mm-hmm. That's what the pedagogy of the oppressor is about. Don't take responsibility. Become a revolutionary. Throw off the whole system. Hate everything. Mm-hmm. Fall into resentment. Fall into grievance. Fall into resentment, as, as Nietzsche had it. Uh, it's a completely upside-down, inverted approach mm-hmm. to improving the lives of the oppressed, which is nominally about helping. So, in other words, when a child is being sent to school, or you're a parent who's sending your child to school, is that as opposed to what you believe that they're going to be learning, uh, maybe as you did when you were younger and so forth, and the process by which that learning occurred, is that this is the sort of thing, and this is the sort of approach, and this is the philosophy behind the actual process of education that's going on today. That's right. So, your kids are going to school where they are doing, but not necessarily specifically teaching, critical race theory. Mm-hmm. They're doing this to your children. And what they're learning is, instead of being imbued with mathematics or something like that in the banking model of education, they instead are being taught to understand themselves as oppressed by various power dynamics, whether those are sexual, whether mm-hmm. those are racial, or whatever they happen to be. They're oppressed by those power dynamics. And rather than teaching them, you know, coming up to the black kid in the inner city school or whatever and saying, you know what? There's a way out of this. We're going to get you. Pro- we're going to. We're going to get properly educated. We're going to take responsibility over the things you can control, and we're going to build on that responsibility. Responsibility instead of the responsibility path, and seeing that person as an individual who can learn to take responsibility. Nope, this system has to be blown up, or you can't succeed. Mm-hmm. And by the way, those people are the ones who are maintaining the system that make it so you can't succeed. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that cr- doing critical race theory in the schools will do. This is what Ferrari was all about. This is why Ferrari, although he's not considered the father of critical pedagogy, is considered the grandfather, or mm. maybe you could say the godfather, if you were to allude to, you know, mafias <laughs> of critical race theory or critical pedagogy. Mm. So with Paul Ferrari, he would say, though, um, and if I can pull this up just for a second, he says this, and again, you're you're talking about dialogical methods. Methods that he well, let's do the dialogical. To. Real quick, before what what is that about? Before right. we get into these specifics, uh, he, he names in the fourth chapter are several specifics about right. what it looks like. So, what his idea is, and this is actually another problem that's happening in our schools, is he's he says that the teachers the teachers shouldn't be like the bankers depositing mm-hmm. into the children; that they should be in dialogue with one another as though they're virtually right. equals. Right. So he wants to obliterate the power dynamic between teacher and student, mm-hmm. which is a natural hierarchy. Mm-hmm. This is where you hear BS from like the self-esteem movement where the teachers come out and gush and virtue signal and say things like, I learn as much from my students or more than they learn from me. And that's BS. I taught calculus. The, 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 my students taught me virtually zero about calculus. Mm-hmm. Maybe I learned some things about how to teach calculus to students, but they taught me virtually nothing mm-hmm. about calculus. I taught them a lot about calculus. There's mm-hmm. no parity here. Uh, and what he wants to do is take the teachers and the students and bring them down on a level. What a remarkable concept that a Marxist wants to bring things down and put them on a level mm-hmm. where there's no hierarchies between people and that's just going to magically work out. So he wants, that's why it's called a dialogical model is that there's going to be dialogue of a particular kind, which mm-hmm. we'll discuss in a minute out of the book. There's going to be dialogue between teachers and students. So there's no longer going to be teachers. They're going to be teacher students. And they're no longer going to be students, they're going to be student teachers, which, if you're Hegelian, you would understand immediately is a dialectical synthesis of the ideas of teacher and student. Right. He's combined them into one idea. It's just like where where Foucault takes knowledge is power, that's Francis Bacon, and he's like, 
Knowledge is power. They're right. identical. So it's power knowledge with a slash between them, just right. like we have teacher students and student teachers in Ferrari. We're going to make two concepts that are actually not quite the same thing into one thing that's, that's the same. And now teacher students and student teachers are literally very close to on, a, on par with one another. And we're going to dialogue about whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's not a good way to learn. Mm. And that, by the way, just to kind of bounce back to what's in our schools is the original framing question for this for this i saw a thing in a book called the handbook of critical race theory in education because it, remember critical race theory is not in our schools mm -hmm. the handbook of critical race theory in education where i think it's richard delgado's chapter in the book as a mm -hmm. matter of fact so we're not talking about some like weirdo anthology with like little fringe writers the the guy he's right one of the guys he's right there and he's got this super weird chapter, to be honest with you. Don't eat. We can talk about that another time, how weird it is. He's like, I got this email from a math teacher. Mm -hmm. And they use this to teach the coordinate planes. And it gives us, it shows a picture of an x-axis, y-axis. Well, x-axis, y-axis, don't let me lose my math chops. And instead, of, the y-axis is like, how into social justice are you? And mm -hmm. the x-axis is like, how committed to social activism are you? Mm -hmm. Or something like that. And it's like, I taught the coordinate plane and they weren't getting it x and y and it's also abstract but i made it concrete by bringing it into their world by saying oh well how into social justice are you that's the vertical mm -hmm. axis versus how into social activism are you and then where do you want to be and then everybody understood the quadrants and it mm -hmm. gave it meaning but what they did in the process was just shuttled in critical theory garbage in the guise of a math lesson they did absolutely nothing to right. teach people about the relationship but that's as I can tell you as a mathematician, those two things have nothing to do with a independent, dependent variable relationship, which right. is what the, the, is actually the, the point of teaching um, the coordinate plane in, 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 in algebra, at least. Mm -hmm. Or like, let's say, in music education. You know, where you're bringing in these concepts, where you're bringing in the oppressed oppressor narratives, when you're bringing in the idea that of whiteness into um, the understanding or the appreciation of music and the playing of music um, together with others. And all of a sudden, this strangeness that really has no place begins to, to become part of the experience of learning music, of playing music, of enjoying music, of being part of a group of people, whether it be in an orchestra or a choir, that are together doing one thing. And instead, you end up entering into tension. Well, that's the it whole has point. No, and to yes. not enjoy music. You said to enjoy music, and I was like, BS, that's not what's happening. Right. The point is to learn how to not enjoy music, how to find problems in everything. Right. The whole point is to figure out, via praxis, to figure out what's wrong with the world, not right. what's enjoyable. You know, why is everything in 4-4 four, four time or 3-4 time? These, <laughs> why are they in these, these, exactly. these t time signatures? Oh, well, because, you know white European composers thought that those were the most orderly or, so, you know, something like that. Right. And it, so then it's tainted and then you can't enjoy that. Or, you know, the white supremacy of classical music or white supremacy of Beethoven. Those were big articles that came out recently. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, bring up those kinds of points. Oh, this is very Eurocentric. Right. You know, we, we didn't even in, include other other cultures' music, and that's because, you know, the curriculum's been racially biased for so long. So now everything you've ever thought about music, you have to call into question. Everything you've ever done in these choruses, you go, well, what, was I reproducing white supremacy by singing Handel together with people or, you know, whatever. And then you have this whole generation of, of young people that never are introduced to Puccini, to, to Mozart, to, to other things. And then all of a sudden what you'll see is, is these young people that have never been introduced to this, all of a sudden 
they're watching and now a lot of people make money off the fact that they're reaction of the reaction videos I love of, these. Of, of watching, you know, uh, Pavarotti singing Nessun Dorma for the first time and they watch it and they are brought to tears. Yeah. Because of the beauty of the music. Yeah, it turns out that there actually is beauty in these things. And so, the, so you're, you're robbing them of this experience. Exactly. Well, the whole point of yes. critical theory is to make people miserable with their, with their experience. Absolutely. Because you have to make them realize that the system's oppressing them, so they'll become revolutionaries. The right. system makes you miserable. This is what Herbert Marcuse, now granted, Ferrari didn't quote Marcuse, but Giroux does. Giroux yeah. does a whole bunch of times. I read a book on critical pedagogy by Henry Giroux. It came out in like 2011. I think he cites Marcuse like 26 times, 28 times or something like that in the book. Right. He talks about Marcuse in the book all the time. And so this is what Marcuse said is that people have to realize they think they're happy. They, they have their contentment. They are actually happy. But that's because they don't realize the true nature of their servitude. Right. And until they realize their true nature of their servitude, they don't know. And so people like to think, oh, well, Herbert Marcuse, that was the 1960s. Nobody really talks about critical theory like those guys at Frankfurt School anymore. Giroux does. And That's Giroux right. is the guy who just took a huge shovel and just rammed this stuff into our education system. He cites Marcuse all the time. Right. He cites for he's very radicalized him. It's a beautiful, funny story mm -hmm. of mental illness, maybe. <laughs> and I think people forget what really happened between the years of 1967 and about 1974. You know, not just in the United States, but all over the world. You know, yeah. one of the precipitating events, of course, was Vietnam. Right. But the there are other things. Front. There are other things happening within yeah. within France and so forth and Rome that really led to uh, these these great movements of trying to overthrow, if you will, almost like a, and I don't want to call it necessarily a cultural revolution, but the way in which we, we come to our ideas. The there way was a cultural revolution. Yep. All these guys, Marcuse, Ferrari, mm -hmm. they're all looking at, they're all saying, well, the, the Marcuse and the SN Liberation, he's like, well, the revolution in China is going great. <laughs> like right in the middle of the cultural revolution, tens of millions of people dying. Right. He doesn't know that because the propaganda or whatever, more than likely, he doesn't know that how many people are dying. Right, and I, I shouldn't laugh at that, by the way. My, my wife's family escaped that, so I apologize. But no, I, yeah. it's like he's like, the, he's like the, S, the, the revolution in Cuba is awesome. The revolution yeah. going on in, in, uh, in China is great. And the, the long march to the institutions, named by Rudy Deutschke in the, what, 1966 mm -hmm. or 7, 5, something, somewhere in there. I don't remember the exact date where he laid this out which is what Marcuse was also looking at, and this is what led to this whole turn in education, what's now being described as the critical turn in education. There's a book mm -hmm. by that title by Isaac Gotsman people should absolutely should read. Mm -hmm. um, this turn in education is following that model, which is rooted in Gramsci, which is rooted in Mao. Mm -hmm. Whether Gramsci and Mao had a connection, not clear. It's actually not known. Mm -hmm. um, there are reasons to believe it's possible. There are reasons to believe, I mean, the, the academic consensus is that Mao did what Gramsci thought, right. but it's not knowing right. if it, similar conditions led to similar thoughts or if he actually read the guy. Right. Uh, certainly Gramsci wasn't popular in China until the 1980s, which is after Mao died, so it's not known. But they were looking at what was happening in China, like, that's working. Mm -hmm. That's changing. That's bringing in mm -hmm. communism. It mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, that's what we should do. And all right. of a sudden you have like the Weatherman Underground, like, let's not blow things up anymore. People don't seem to like this. Let's not right. set Detroit on fire anymore. People don't like that. Let's not kill people on college campuses. People don't like that. New plan, 
let's all become K through 12 activists. Right. Which is what they did. It's amazing. It's what they did. They all became K through 12 activists. It's Critical like, uh, pedagogy like, started happening. Like, like switching from the Stalin Mao, you know, channel to, okay, let's go to the Gramsci uh, channel. And exactly. So right. And also that's when Gramsci started to appear in the West. Yep. He was first translated into English, as far as I know, in 1970 by, what is it? Is it Joseph Buttigieg at Notre Dame. <laughs> Remember that name? Well, the, it's the same name. It's, yes. a, it's Pete's, Mayor Pete's dad. Right. Um, translated Gramsci in 1970 into English, but certainly, like, if you read Marcuse, he spoke probably umpteen languages. So yeah. it's it's very likely he read Gramsci before that. And Gramsci might have been translated, but differently or earlier mm. and more poorly before Buttigieg got a hold of it. Mm. So. Gramsci's coming onto the scene at this time. They're looking over at Mao. Mao did what Gramsci thought. They have Gramsci in front of them. A and B are going together. Gramsci names five pillars of culture that have to be uh, infiltrated if you want to change a culture from within for a counter hegemony. He names religion, family, education, media, and law. And he spends, those are all important, but he spends a ton of time, unlike, you know, gross old uh, George Lukács, who's over there talking about this, let's sexualize Hungary and turn it into like pervert city to undermine the society in the 1910s, mm -hmm. um, late 1910s. But he was like, no, we need working class intellectuals. Mm -hmm. We're going to become working class teachers, meaning, in, in fact, critically conscious proletarians who mm -hmm. are going to now teach proletariat ideology to working class children to inspire uh, the, the next generation to become a movement. And he also understood that if you want to get family is one thing, but religion maybe is one thing. But if you want to get people in media and law, they've got to be educated to become media and law players. Mm. So education becomes key to this. So this mm -hmm. long march through the institutions at that point in the 60s, late 60s and 70s would have clearly understood mm -hmm. that education is like the door to unlock if you want to change the next generation and if you want to change the next generation of professionals. Mm. And so they went for education and the mm. critical turn of edu in education begins. This is a little bit before Giroux, but Giroux by 1980, uh, late 1970s has read uh, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which was translated into English in 72. Mm. By 1980, Giroux's written his most famous book, Ideology. Uh, I forget the full title, but the, the bookmark title in, in uh, Gottsman is uh, Ideology, so it's Ideology something Education. And um, he's a critical pedagogy movement is off to the races, right? bringing this stuff in. And so that dialogical model of Paulo Freire becomes the model. Well, this is the story, since I've alluded to it a couple of mm, times. Mm, mm, mm. So Giroux is having a bad run in his classroom. He knows he has this new model. He knows he's not relating to his students the way he wants to. He knows he's a leftist activist, and he knows that he wants to have a more kind of dynamic, interactive learning model than the stand-up and lecture model. And there are deficiencies to the lecture model. I get this. Um, there's value and there's deficiencies to a lot of things. And so he's doing this through the 70s. He's frustrated. He's getting very frustrated that he mm. can't figure out how to make his classroom work the way he wants to and his principal won't let him. Next thing you know, he gets a hold of a copy of the Pedagogy of the Oppressed, reads the whole thing in one night, which is possible, mm. it's not that long, it's only four chapters, caught on fire, doesn't sleep for like 48 hours. He has some story he tells in one of his other books about how, mm. on, I think it's in Isaac Got Gottsman's book on the critical turn of education about how overwhelmingly taken by Ferrari he is and he runs into his principal, he's like, this is it, this is how, and I think he still got a pretty cold reception and then pulled the typical critical trick and was like, I'm just gonna do it anyway. You know, he's right. told no. 
I don't know what the rest of this story is, but one thing leads to another, and somehow he ends up in the, the uh, tenure track in the School of Education at Boston University uh, a number of years later. And he's, you know, gets up to his tenure decision, and he, he says, in, in on critical pedagogy at least, he says that the uh, department head is notoriously conservative. Mm. And so he's like, I don't want some Marxist radical. Like, as I said, anybody who reads Pedagogy of the Press and said yes, it's like, how did that happen? Well, this guy was like, no, your stuff's all based in Pedagogy of the Press. Denies him tenure. Mm. So he doesn't get tenure. Turns out the same week they had already arranged, those people doing praxis in the department had already arranged to bring Freire in to speak at Boston University. And he stayed mm. at... Jeru's house mm. because Jeru's his big fan and that's usually right. how that kind of thing works and so he stays the weekend and Jeru's got a chip on his shoulder because he just got denied tenure he's pissed Paulo Freire's literally telling stories about having to eat like literal garbage and like sometimes human remains out of landfills from during the depression where he'd got this his family had been knocked out of a middle-class lifestyle in Brazil to utter destitution and mm. he's telling these stories, and then Jeru's like, that's like how I didn't get tenure. You know, it's like you can tell that narcissistic injuries there or something. And he says they bonded so tightly. And then the whole rest of everything that's written about him, it's all like between him and Stanley Aronowitz and all these other early critical pedagogy people. It's like, the guy was like a cult leader or something. Mm -hmm. He like had this air about him. They're like, oh, he lived it just perfectly. And to be in his presence was to be in the presence of, you know, the praxis itself. You know, it's very cult feeling. And the, the on critical pedagogy, the last chapter in it, or the second to last chapter, is just this huge, like, it was so great to be near Paulo Freire. We drank great wine and we connected and he, we lived the praxis. And it's like, okay, so there's some weird cultish thing going on. But he brings this stuff in whole hog. It's a hundred people tenured all to bring this stuff in mm. to our education system. And so banking model is going to be out, dialogical model is going to be in, and th that's where the critical turn in education actually happened, following, again, that long march through the institutions, was really mediated by this guy who's citing, uh, citing Marcuse, citing Franz Fanon, the revolutionary, uh, Al what is he, Algerian-French or French-Algerian uh, mm. psychoanalyst who literally said that to decolonize things, you should use violence, revolutionary violence, terribly violent guy, quoting Jacques Derrida all the time, big Derridian thinker, mm -hmm. Giroux was. I mean, he's very well familiar with all of these European theorists, and he's a, all in on, on uh, Ferrari, and that's where it's like, how did this stuff get into our society so thickly? How did we get critical theory and uh, postmodernism so deeply in our society? Henry Giroux has a lot to do with it. Mm. Now, going back to Ferrari, yeah. he and what you had just mentioned about dialogical actions. Yeah. He would say that you have um, the, the tools of the oppressors are termed anti-dialogical actions. In other words, those that prevent the dialogue with yeah, the student exactly. and the teacher. And the ways the oppressed can overcome them are dialogical actions. So he would say the four anti-dialogical actions include conquest, manipulation, divide and rule, and cultural invasion. Yeah, it's total. total I read that, you know, it's the fourth chapter, I think, of uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's the, I was like, on, I think it was on an airplane, and I'm in my head, because you can't be a weirdo on an airplane, <laughs> and my mask on and all that, and I'm just like screaming in my head, and I'm like, Iron Law of Woke the Projection. Ah! <laughs> there it is it's again. It's like, conquest. Yep. There ah! it is again. 
<laughs> cultural, what is it? Cultural infiltration. Long words for the institutions. What did I just talk about? Right. Divide and rule. Well, if you get all the people mad at each other and you split them apart, right. like it does everywhere it goes, you polarize every environment, you have divide and rule. What was right. the other one? Cultural invasion. No, 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 it was manipulation. manipulation. Yeah, yes. totally. The whole thing's manipulative. Yep. Oh, we don't even teach critical race theory. It's critical race praxis. It's critical philosophy of race. You don't even know what you're talking about. It's all manipulation. Gaslighting, everything Gaslighting else. Gaslighting yep. and just it's lying and just, it's. you don't even know what it is. You don't even know the definition. Not one critic of critical race theory can give the right. definition. You give the definition, well, you're not a real critic of critical race theory. Right. That's not real critical race theory. Real critical race theory has never been tried. It's all manipulation. Right. Oh, right. if you don't, you just don't want people to be able to teach about slavery. Manipulation. Right. It, that is a road. Everything that he says the enemies do is what it is. They what they are doing. And that last one, cultural infiltration, is straight up. That's mm -hmm. Gramsci. Mm -hmm. Who Freire was a Gramscian, by the way. He yeah. had read Gramsci. Right. He had. So I think he cites him. And so that's straight up long march to the institutions. Gramscian counter hegemony uh, infiltration. That is straight up mm -hmm. their roadmap. Right. It is exactly what they're doing. That's why the decolonize movement is really a colonization movement. Right. They're colonizing education with their garbage. Correct. And also teaching people to not know what good looks like. Right. And so while all this is going on, the people that are actually practice, practicing these things and deconstructing education, deconstructing our societies, is you always have the folks that are, are the Praetorian Guard, as I like to say, that are around them making excuses for making them. Making excuses. So, that's those, right. I hate to say it, but that's those liberal people I was talking about earlier mm -hmm. who are like, we have to be able to teach this stuff because that would be, you know, free speech and academic freedom and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, if the teaching that stuff didn't include step three, which is praxis, I might agree with you on a level. Mm. Although you still don't teach every crazy idea that everyone, nobody's teaching time cube. Right, exactly. So, okay, let's say you're a parent now and you're listening to all of this. What do you do? How do you approach the school boards? What do you do with your kids? How do you approach teachers that you know are doing this and sending your child home with, uh, with things to study about these things. You gotta show up, first of all. That's the first thing. You gotta know your rights. That's the second thing. There's a very passionate video of a guy explaining to a school board that's trying to turn his mic off and right. telling him that his tone is wrong, that under his First Amendment rights and under uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence, he has the right, including to use vigorous or aggressive tone right. to address the state. Right. The state doesn't have some privileged position where people can't yell at it. Right. This is the United States of America, folks. I don't know what they're doing in the other countries, but in the U.S., you can yell at the state. Mm -hmm. You definitely can. You know, that is your First Amendment right. So you're going to have to know those rights. Uh, you're going to have to understand what you can do and what you can't do, and you're going to have to show up. They're going to try to do things like shut your microphone off, limit the amount of time. I saw one where they claimed that people who fight against critical race theory, for example, are divisive and disruptive, they cause disturbances, so we're not gonna hear from those people. And you have to be able to stand up and articulate your rights. One thing that's been very effective, the school boards don't seem to like it. By the way, film yourself doing it also right. in case, it's illegal for them to manipulate videos of a public meeting mm -hmm. uh, because of First Amendment again right. and transparency. Uh, read those materials out loud. Mm -hmm. They don't like it, they th especially right. the sexual stuff, the stuff right. that we talk a lot about critical race theory. We don't talk much about the queer theory side of this. Mm. They don't like that stuff being read out loud. You get that book for like seven-year-olds or whatever that's about masturbation and like weird sexual stuff, 
Start reading it out loud. Somebody did in a school board. They got real upset. They're like, that's not appropriate to say here. And if it's, it's not appropriate, appropriate to say to adults in a school <laughs> right. board, it's not appropriate to be teaching to children for sure. Right. And so show it. Right. You have to show it. If I, you know, if we didn't read from Ferrari or quote this stuff or people didn't believe in the fact that I've read this stuff like a bajillion times, mm -hmm. it's, and, and the most effective thing I still do is I either for podcasts or even in public talks, I just read their stuff mm -hmm. out loud because you, people don't believe it till they see it. It's so crazy. So they can do that. Mm -hmm. They should start considering lawyering up. They need to understand their rights regarding free, free speech, but they also need to understand their rights regarding compelled speech in particular. Teachers who are mm -hmm. against this stuff should understand that they can't be compelled to speak in certain ways. There is like the job, you know, if you're a math teacher, you can be compelled to teach math, I guess. But you can't be compelled to, to profess certain things. You can't be compelled to do this. You actually have rights. And if you start, I don't think schools change until a couple of things start happening. One is school boards start getting flipped over this by right. parents showing up, people realizing, hey, I could be on a school board. I could serve my community like I'm supposed to mm -hmm. as a civic duty at some level. And secondly, lawsuits. Right. You burn a couple of these schools with big lawsuits. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know it's a sensitive issue maybe for Christians, but I think you're, you're a classically liberal enough guy to get it. When, when Christians had the schools, mm -hmm. And they were praying in schools and everything else that technically is in violation of the First Amendment. They didn't just let go, right? Mm -hmm. Lawsuits had to come in and say, no, we're, we're going to preserve that as a secular space. People, these people are infinitely more vigorous than Christians about making sure their ideology. I mean, look at this. In the San Francisco school board, you have this one character, Allison Collins. She's calling Asian people the N-word mm -hmm. on social media repeatedly. She's enacting racism repeatedly. They try to, all they end up doing, they have a vote to remove her powers on the school board. She, A, gets to vote on her own censure. Mm -hmm. She gets to vote on her own censure? What in the world is that? Mm -hmm. Vote goes five to two. Mm -hmm. She loses. She and her one little buddy, who happens to be the director of the school board, vote for her. Everybody else is like, we can't touch this hot potato. She flips out sues the school board for $87 million for emotional damages. $87 million. Right. Because right. you got removed. She didn't get removed from the board. She just got removed from having power. Right. And it's like, well, that tells you everything that you need to know is these people are not interested in education. Yeah. They're right. not interested in anything except power to enforce their ideology. Right. And that has to be met with lawsuits. Right. And the thing is, too, is that let's say that we're going back to the Christians is that Many years ago, they began to really fortify Christian schools or the homeschool movement right. and so forth. So they moved all their kids to, all right, they're going to be safe here. Not so fast. Yeah. Because then it begins to enter itself into the Christian school system as well. Oh, that's right. ACSI that's right. and so forth and, and, and organizations and, and, and like that. And the other that side of that, yep. the other side of that is Christians said, okay, and the First Amendment, you're protected. You can go make a Christian school. If you right. want, it's just not the public school. Right. And you can do that. I don't even think you can make a critical race theory school. Oh, I think you could try. I don't think you can but, but, because but it's going to be inherently <laughs> discriminatory. Right, right, right. It will right. violate the Civil Rights exactly. Act. And you can't do that even in a Christian school. Right, right, right. You can't do, religious liberty doesn't allow you to violate the Civil Rights Act. Right. So within this situation, though, is that basically what we see is, again, the attempt is to take over all of education. If you will, all of everything. in essence, that there is the catechization of, of all of the children, of all of the young people, and as well going into then all of the fields of education past that point. So there's almost a no escaping it kind of situation that's happening. And that's to go back 
as Ferrari said, to turn these people into revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. That's why you want to raise the children to realize the society is the thing that oppresses them and right. that the only way out has nothing to do with seeing themselves as individuals right. who can take responsibility and climb out of whatever bad situation they're they're in by hard work, by investing in themselves, by taking some, you know, reasonable risks and building the way out, but no, you have to instead have solidarity with all of the other oppressed people and you have to become a block of revolutionaries who should model themselves, not even after Fidel Castro, who didn't even do it right. You gotta go after people like, you gotta be, you model yourself after people like Che Guevara, Mao Zedong, and Lenin. Yeah, and then so when you have people that are older, that are in their, their 50s and 60s and so forth, as opposed to actually dialoguing with them and so forth, that they had different experiences in their life growing up where there was unity and so forth, you then begin to inject things into the popular culture, like just phrases like, okay, boomer, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, just cut down. Right. Cut down, deconstruct. It's a non-response. It's a thought-stopping technique, as Robert J. Lifton pointed out, speaking of the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. Robert J. Lifton studied cults, but in particular, he studied how did they pull off things like the Cultural Revolution. It was thought-stopping techniques. Somebody right. thinks a thought off of the ideology, bam, hit them with a, stop, a thought-stopping technique. Racist. Right. Okay, boomer. You know, right. that's a boomer mentality. That's conservative thinking. That's rightist. Mm-hmm. That's bourgeois values. Mm-hmm. Thought stopping. Right. You just blank them out. Or just the general, uh, you know, most most commonly used term for that is racist. Yeah, sure, of course. Just you know. racist. Right. Racist. So then with, if you're a parent. You it used know, to be check your privilege, but that went out of style. <laughs> That's a thought stopping technique. <laughs> right, right. So then if you're a parent, we're not trying to give false hope to try to say that, all right, we're going to be able to take all of this back and so forth. But what we do have to say is that there will be no hope unless you stand up for your rights, for your children's rights, and start demanding to take them back, and as well showing a way to. Yeah, you've got to recognize in your children's, like, and the sniff test never really goes out of style. Mm -hmm. If it looks like it's probably wrong, it probably is wrong. Mm -hmm. If they're talking about privilege and things like this, you should really already be suspicious. And then Mm. you've got to start making noise you've got to show up and you've got to learn to recognize that stuff be able to articulate no i know what this is and i know what it comes from and if you want to say it's not critical race theory i want to say it's still still awful and illegal it's still immoral it still violates the civil rights act why are we doing this call it whatever you want it's still bad but i also i think people should just have the confidence to say no that's bs Mm -hmm. it's close enough Mm -hmm. i don't care about the academic technicalities Mm. it's close enough james what does a good model of education, public education, let's say, look like to you? Well, I mean, there are a lot of different ways I can answer that. I could try to get into stuff like school choice. It's very popular right now. And the idea that the market, you know, different people can choose what school they go to under an ideal system where, you know, teachers and accreditation aren't through ideological pipelines. You know, there's, there's that. But that's a kind of a systems level answer. Mm. And I'm not a pedagogy expert, so I don't want to mislabel myself, but I do know that there are ways to learn and mm-hmm. that they are known to be more effective. I do think that you have to begin, like when I taught calculus, I believe that you actually have to learn some calculus before you can enter into dialogue about calculus. I don't think I was competent to ask interesting questions about calculus until I was in graduate school and had taught calculus a couple of times where it's like, no, this is how you do it. The, this is how you do it, almost algorithmic method. 
Well, it can appeal to more intuitive models, or you can organize your classroom in various ways that get people more engaged or more interested. You know, there's a lot of flexibility with that, but you actually have to develop skills acquisition in ways that are progressive one step after the other. You, basic skills, if you can't do algebra, you can't do calculus, even if you understand the concepts. If you can't do addition and subtraction and arithmetic, you probably can't do algebra. You have to get from one step to the next, to the next, to the next, and that's gonna require some rote learning, and then what reflection should be, rather than reflecting on how to become a revolutionary, mm -hmm. reflecting on what you learned, and, and then moving forward. It's like they perverted that idea of reflecting on this. But the, the point is that it's not what I think is a good model, it's that there are actually good models known out there yep. that actually work, That's that right. don't focus incessantly on self-esteem and feelings. They mm -hmm. focus on, uh, we know that they're out there because the Chinese are using them to get ready to whip our asses. Mm -hmm. They're not screwing around with education anymore. They screwed around with education under Mao. By the time Deng Xiaoping got in charge, they're like, nope, education is gonna be super strict and everybody's gonna be able to do you know, all this stuff and they get a crazy hard calculus by like 10th grade. Mm -hmm. um, there are good ways to learn and it's going to require people to learn the basic skills and to build on those basic skills and to save the dialogue for when you actually have enough competence to have good dialogue. Now, if you don't know, Pythagoras, the Greek, he had his academy, it's really a cult, but he had his academy, we'll call it, and it had two different levels of students. The, what would be comparative to the undergraduates and what would be compared to the graduate students now. And your job when you were in the undergraduate category was to shut up and, and learn. Mm -hmm. And you didn't get to ask questions except for clarification until you reached the higher level. Mm. You had to graduate before you could ask questions because you didn't know what you were talking about. And it's just mostly, I mean, maybe you ask an insightful question, but most of it's clarification, et cetera. So there are known models. We have to focus on learning rather than feelings and self-esteem. I just was reading about personality disorders and one of them is like entitled narcissist or elitist narcissism or elitist narcissism. And it's like, how does this happen? And it's like, you know, it's basically give everybody a trophy or whatever. It's they, they have puffed up sense of, of, of self because they've never had real challenges, but were given big awards for them and puffed up and all this stuff. And so the whole movement there was a, was a huge mistake. Um, making people struggle a bit, like yeah. not just coddling them right. through education. You actually do learn that way. Mm -hmm. um, it's very important. So there are a lot of things that are actually known. It's not my, not my expertise. I don't want to talk about, like I'm a pedagogist because I'm not, or an I'm not even an educator anymore. I just know that from the different things that I've learned and gotten good at over time, that you do have to start with the basics and you have to start working your way up. And there is, it's not banking model, but you, the teacher is the expert until you catch up enough to be able to add something to the conversation. Mm -hmm. And that has to be recognized. That hierarchy is part of the deal and it needs to be recognized and it needs to actually be valued. Mm. It needs to be respected. And this breaking down to teacher, student and student teacher breaks that respect where the actual process of learning especially in children, is going to take place. There has to be an authority figure model with boundaries and all of this. It can't all just be free for all and feelings and everybody gets a trophy and everybody's right. happy. This is how you mess up kids. Mm. This is how they learn nothing except how to not be good at stuff and then be mad at the system that they're not good at stuff. Mm. And I've granted the system that's in place right now is screwing them over. You want to be mad at the system, it's the woke system you should be mad at. Mm. A last word to the moms and the dads and the grandparents that are going to these school board meetings, what would be a last word to them? 
that they're right. They, what they sense is correct. That what they know about how kids are and how kids learn is correct. That their sense that what their kids are being exposed to is racist and perverse in the sexual realm and damaging in the gender realm uh, is going to destabilize their kids' sense of identity. That they sense that that stuff's wrong, they're right. It's wrong. That stuff is wrong. And that they have all the standing that they need to go speak up about it. Even if they don't know the details, they have the standing they need to speak up. Because, I mean, you don't have to have a PhD in critical theories or their analysis to be able to see something is blatantly wrong and to stand up and say something else. But they do, it, the more informed you get, especially about your own rights and the basics of what you're looking at, the more effective you're gonna be. Also, go in groups because they're against you in groups. <laughs>